Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Uh, we are here on this uh, auspiciously damp Cornish Sunday morning to talk about your wonderful autobiography, Exceeding My Brief. Uh, this is the hardback version. The uh, uh, paperback version has a rather brighter and livelier yes. cover, as you will see when you uh, go to the bookshop afterwards to purchase a copy. There we are. We're just having it modelled in the front row uh, <laughs> so people know, know what it looks like. It's subtitled Memoirs of a Disobedient Civil Servant. And some of it is about your career in the civil service, but as we're going to discover over the next hour, there is so much more than that to your life. Uh, a tale of prime ministers, African gold mines, a Penzance childhood, London nightclubs, uh, <laughs> ITV, and much more besides. Before we, we talk through, I wanted to ask you about three, three specific things. And one of them is about Cornwall, because most of your career has been out of Cornwall. Almost all of your career has been out of Cornwall. But you were born in, in Penzance, and your Cornishness has always been a key part of your makeup, hasn't it? Your accent, for example, which we're going to hear this morning. Well, I'm Cornish through and through and through. And uh, my parents were Cornish, my grandparents were Cornish. I have no other blood than Cornish blood. And I'm very, very proud to say I'm a bard. So uh, you can imagine how um, extremely honored I felt when I was made a bard. I mean, a lot of people think it's quite risible to go around in these robes. <laughs> and uh, it was probably all dreamt up in the 19th century. But we like to think that it's on um, older myths. And of course, for me, coming here to St. Andillion is foreign country. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm in Penzance and Helston. Um, the Great Western Railway took us to London. And for me, north was Truro. A real north would have been Exeter. And, 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 and this was in between. So I'm spending some extra days down here, getting to know a part of my homeland which will be new for me, and I'm looking forward very much to it. And as you were saying earlier on, it's, Cornwall is a, a county that is a county of so many different territories. I mean, it's, this is completely different to, yes. to the Lizard, where I'm from, or, or to, to Penzance, where, where you're from. Yes, it is. It is interesting because we all, I mean, in fact, we all have Cornish identity, and it is palpable and true. It's very odd. Sometimes... Uh, my Yorkshire friends say, why do you go on about it? it um, you know, um, uh, you're, you're just English. I'd say, Oof. you wouldn't say that to somebody who's Welsh or Scottish. I mean, the fact that there aren't very many of us, <laughs> and there aren't very many of us, should not affect how our total strong sense of identity. Oh, and you feel it too, I know absolutely, you do. Absolutely, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Uh, Cornish and British, I think, is the way yes. of defining it. Rather That's than, right. Rather <laughs> than Cornish and, and English. Yes. In this book, you come across effortlessly as a, a pioneering figure in many, many different areas. Do you see yourself as being a feminist? I do, I strongly do. When I was a child, uh, my father was very much a, a man of his time. He'd been a soldier. He'd been a regimental sergeant major in the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry which was really um, something to be very proud of. And um, uh, he um, wrote, when I had my first autograph album, he wrote in it for me, B 
Be good, sweet maid. Let those who wish be clever. (laughs) 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 And I remember again when I was a child, uh, I was whistling because I was extremely happy and I whistled in the gardens and the gardener in the Morab garden stopped me and he said, a whistling woman and a crowing hen are no good for God or man. <laughs> I didn't understand what he meant. My mother had to explain. <laughs> it was not very nice for a girl to whistle. And so I suppose, in a way, I did not know my place then. And uh, indeed, I think I never really have known my place. <laughs> Which is very useful if you're born. Um, uh, my father had a dairy. He owned a dairy. How about that? You know, very grand. And, um, uh, you, you know, you were sort of a certain place in the class system of this country. I never, I went to a public school. And um, I've known people of various walks of life all my life. So I've never really known my place. It's been quite useful um, as, uh, in terms of the class of this country. Um, it was like when I was at number 10, because I didn't go to university, got very good excuses. My father went bankrupt, things like that. But I didn't go to university. And um, mind you, in those days, this was back in the 40s, quite unusual for a girl to go. Um, And I was working and I was considered as one of us by the top brains in the civil service, Bailey or boys to a man. And um, they treated me as somebody who was intelligent and had judgment, great things in the civil service, word judgment. And um, the fact that I didn't go to university suddenly was absolutely Not irrelevant. Yeah. You yeah. Know? We'll come, we'll come on, to that, on to that period. We were both here for Sophie Ratcliffe's talk earlier on this yes. morning. And, and great talk. Talking very interestingly. I know you bought, <laughs> bought the book, and, uh, and I'm going to be talking very, very interestingly about her father and the grief around her, her father's death. I mean, your, your father, you paint in the early chapters of the book as, as perhaps being a little misogynistic, being a little uh, a, a, a roguish figure, a complicated figure, perhaps a man who was, was having affairs outside of the marriage to your mother. Uh, a, a, a man, a, 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 a difficult man. But then there's a moment in the book which hit me between the eyes when suddenly he invites you much later on in life to go to a Paul Robeson concert. And it turns out he is a huge fan of Paul Robeson and all he stood for. It was extremely interesting because um, I was then uh, living in a bed sit in London and my father then said, I've got tickets. He, he wrote to me and said, I've got tickets for um, a Paul Robeson concert. I didn't know he, apparently he really thought he was wonderful. And we went to it and we, st- we sat right by an aisle. So Paul Robeson walked past us. He was stunning. He was over six foot. He was t- terribly well made. He was very handsome. He was gorgeous. And he sang and he had a wonderful voice. And he sang beautifully. And when he sang as he had to, of course, Old Man River, <laughs> the end of it when he sings, um, I get weary and sick of trying but I'll keep fighting until I'm dying. And everybody stood up and cheered. And this was a North London audience in the Haringey. Um, and um, there was no sense. My father's eyes were shining. He said, this is the man. And 
this is somebody who had no racism at all. But um, this was a man. Mm. Very it's amazing. Very interesting. There are episodes, little lines in the book, and, and, and this goes back to what we were saying about you as a feminist, which you don't dwell on, but you, you, you just mention a couple of examples that, that you discover that your deputy at the Independent <laughs> Broadcasting Authority is being paid considerably more than, more than you. Uh, well, <laughs> that's gone away, hasn't it, viz yeah. uh, the BBC. Uh, you, 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 you discover that male civil servants, when travelling on official business with the Prime Minister, when invited to go to a grand dinner, get an allowance for black tie. Women civil servants have to get their own clothes. Yes, well, it's most interesting, actually, because... Um, Whoops, the first one was... Um, uh, the, 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 the IBA and Equal Oh, yes. Pay. I mean, that was really a facer because I'd come from the civil service where they had real equality in pay and things like that. And I went to this... Uh, I was 50, and I thought, if I'm going to do something, now's the time to do it. I have one more promotion in the civil service, and that'll be my lot. So I'll go and um, uh, try... So I looked in the Times... And I didn't know what the job was. That's why I sort of ticked. I, could, I can do this, I can do this. I went, and it was like heaven. Because then I realised suddenly I had a car, I had an allowance, I had all these things I didn't know. And um, I, uh, I was very happily there doing the job. I mean, there were things in the papers about um, Barbara gets top PR job in London. And it was, it was PR, but it was not really. It was more explaining to a breathless world why we had censorship of, uh, of broadcasting. I should just probably say the IBA, for anyone who doesn't know, was the Independent Broadcasting Authority, which was the, yes. the regulatory body for, it no longer exists, but it was the regulatory body for ITV That's and, right. and commercial um, radio. Yes, it was, and uh, because the BBC regulated itself, but this was all, it had to be regulated. But after all, this is a form of censorship. In fact, the argument now is that this should apply to social media and I hope it does, um, because uh, you know, it really needs regulation. And um, six months later, I was doing up the books of my division, and I had lots of staff, big job, lovely. And um, it was lovely. Every woman should have a big job and enjoy it and have the staff. Of course they should. So, uh, and have the money and have the car. Of course they should. So, uh, and I thought there's a mistake here somewhere, my, my deputy, John. Um, and, um, in fact, I mean, he was slightly difficult anyway. But he, he, he wanted the job and you got it over his head. He wanted the job. Yeah. He had every reason to have the job. He had been the editor of a regional paper. He had been in the lobby, the political lobby. He had done all the things I hadn't done. And I had the job. So, um, anyway, I found out. I rang the finance director and I said, some mistake here, isn't it? And he said in a very sort of embarrassed voice, I'm afraid, no mistake, Barbara. I said, what well, is true? He earns, and it was some thousands more than me. Um, so I trotted down the, the eighth floor corridor, which all the important people were on, including me. I had a wonderful office, great view looking over Harrods, my office with it. And... Um, so I went down and I went into Sir Brian Young's room. He was the, my boss, the director general. And um, 
his secretary said, no, you can't go in because he's reading. I said, I don't care. So I went in. <laughs> and I, he said, what is it? It must be something very important. I said, it is. I said, John is being paid more than me. And he looked at me and he said, well, well, um, well he's been here longer. <laughs> so I said, does your deputy get paid more than you? I said, I wanted to sort it out today. And it was. And it was all all right. Yeah. So, but it did my reputation no harm, actually. We um, <laughs> <laughs> went around the whole building. But, I mean, to me, it was shocking because I was hurt. Mm. I was hurt that I couldn't, um, couldn't rely and trust these people. Mm. And I think it probably, even still with the BBC, mm. that they've taken so long to sort this out. Mm. It shouldn't be that difficult. Mm. Mm. And I've, in every job, I've always tried to be fair to men and women um, because they each bring something more from the same sorts of things, the same skills, everything to the job. But um, it is one of the basic fairnesses that you can do something about. There are a lot of things in life that are unfair. I sometimes think I was put on purpose, here on purpose on earth to try and make things fairer. Why else are we here? Uh, so let us change the things we can change. Let's go back to your childhood in, in Penzance. Because you, you mentioned your father's bankruptcy. I mean, that was a, he'd been a successful, running a successful dairy business on, on Causeway Head, I think, in, yes. in, in Penzance. And the friends were, were doctors, were lawyers, That's were, right. were the, yes. the, the, the upper middle classes of, of Penzance. And then suddenly things got tough. He had to start delivering the milk himself. Yes. Uh, uh, there, was, there was less of business, and eventually, eventually it went under. It, that was a shameful thing in a small Cornish town at that time. Every, everybody would have, would have known about it. Every, you know, the, the, the family must have felt humiliated, embarrassed, awkward. We did, and of course it affected the children, although we were quite young. But, um, well, I was 16, so I wasn't that young. And... Um, it, uh, of course, the uh, recriminations at home, the, uh, uh, my father short-tempered anyway, the anger at home. Um, it was impossible to do homework and things like that while this was going on. And um, I then vowed I'm going to leave home as soon as I possibly can. And um, so when my headmistress at uh, West Cornwall School for Girls, which was a fee-paying scholarship to get in, um, you were a scholarship boarding. girl? Yes. And it was a boarding school. Practically all, the, all of them were boarders, but they gave two scholarships a year to Penzance, for girls from Penzance to go. And my headmistress said, look, we'll renew your scholarship because it's no good for someone like you to leave without going to university. I mean, if we think you should. And I said, I, I, mean, I couldn't tell them why. I mean, they were, in a sense, outside the town. And so they didn't know what was going on. They probably didn't even know about my father. So I said, no, 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 I, um, I'm going to leave. So I went to the secretarial school. Um, Miss Wesley and Miss Drew's secretarial, Miss Wesley's secretarial college, but yes. one by Miss Wesley and Miss Drew. And Miss Drew together. And they were actually, they were a couple of lovely, lovely ladies. Miss Wesley was a power in Penzance. Um, all the local business people had got their work typed up by her typing and um, if anyone came down for something when ships were on the rocks and people had to do uh, they'd come down to try and salvage them they did all that work they were very trustworthy but they were um, uh, they knew all the secrets of the town 
<laughs> and uh, I said, um, will you train me for nothing? I'll work for you for nothing. That's something new, Barbara. We've never had that before. Anyway, I'll talk, have to talk to Miss Drew. Miss Drew was very pastel colours, very soft voice. I mean, she and Miss Wesley bicycled to London in, in the 20s. And um, I mean, they were an amazing couple. And they were, they were very well known for Penzance. And they had a lovely little business. They were really they were very good. <coughs> they eventually asked me whether I'd be a junior partner. And I said, no, I want the big life. But, um, <laughs> but I worked for them for nothing. And I worked in the evenings typing up things. And um, it was my first experience of hard work, of watching these two. They worked. And um, I'd never experienced that before. And that, that led to your first, well, your first civil service job, in a way, which was as assistant to the town clerk of the Isles of Scilly. You're uh, promoting me. I was the secretary to the town clerk, not the assistant. <laughs> Because there was an assistant but, town clerk as well, wasn't and there? And there was a town clerk and a deputy town clerk. I was the secretary to, actually, I suppose, both of them. And um, uh, it was a very well-paid job because we had the status of a county council. And um, can you imagine your first job in the Isles of Scilly? I mean, how blessed I was. One day we'd get up and my, my boss would say, come on, Barbara, today we're going to be education. we go down we get into the town clerk's boat and we'd be rowed over to one of the other islands where we'd look at a school and talk to the teacher. They'd come back and um, at lunchtime I had two hours. I'd sometimes go for a swim at lunchtime. And um, it was lovely for my first job. And I was then, because I always wanted, I mean, I did my first broadcast when I was 16. I had my first piece in the paper when I was 10. And when I was on the islands, I was the... Um, uh, correspondent. correspondent for the um, West, the Cornishman. Cornishman. I wrote for the Western Morning News and also because they were linked to the Daily Mail. So if it was a really big story, I sent it up to the Daily Mail as well. And the Cornishman and, uh, paid you by the line, didn't they? Yes, they paid the me by the line. line. So I, penny a line. So I, I mean, it does nothing for your prose style. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, every name was, if you could put more names in, because everyone whose name yeah. was in the paper bought a copy of it. <laughs> so whether it was a funeral or whether it was a wedding, I was there writing everything down. And of course, my boyfriend at the time ran the airport. So that was lovely. So any important person coming down to get away from it all or forget, first thing they did was meet me. I was suppressed. <laughs> Did you have and a, a pork pie hat? With a kind of card <laughs> no. That thing? <laughs> but it was it was great because um, all sorts of really important people came down to the islands. I remember one name was Storm Jamison. I don't know if any of you remember her, but she was a, a very important writer, and she wrote a book called The Mortal Storm, which was turned into a big film, which was a very big film at the time. But these were all, I mean, you know, I'm so old, <laughs> and, um, and I'm remembering things that are before you were born. <coughs> Everyone in this room, I suspect. <laughs> from, from, from the Isles of Scilly, you go, uh, this, the, we're, still, we're still only at 22, I think. <laughs> so, uh, uh, from the Isles of Scilly, you go to, to London yes. and, and to, to a job working for the Odeon 
uh, Gaumont cinema chain. Yes. Uh, you start off there as a, as a secretary, but very quickly you're writing the, and, and putting together the magazine that goes out to cinemas across the, across the country. Yes. You live in, in Swiss Cottage with uh, two, two women who are introduced to you, first of all, as... Sisters. Sisters. But that turns out not to be the case. <laughs> when they got to know me and they thought, you know, we think that Barbara's gay. I didn't really know whether I was or not, but they thought that they were sure I was. And um, so they, they confessed that they weren't, that they were cousins and that they lived together and they loved each other. And um, my eyes were like this, you know, really. And uh, they said, would you like to go to a gay club? I said, I would, yes, if you think I would be all right. And uh, they said, well, you are queer, aren't you? I said, I think so. <laughs> I don't know, I'd never met anybody gay in Penzance. I'd never met anybody gay in the Isles of Scilly. I mean, <laughs> sure they were there. I'm sure they were there, but I didn't meet them. I mean, I, I suspect it's quite possible that Miss Wesley and Miss Drew were an item. I was going to ask you. <laughs> I didn't. So they said, put on your best trousers, <laughs> your best blouse. Do, have you got any shirts? No. <laughs> Put on your blouse. And off we went. And I looked around when we got there. We were down This is the steps. Gateways Club. Yes, it was very well known, the Gateways Club in those days. There was a song called The Green Door, apparently actually based on the Gateways Green Door. And um, going down the stairs to a basement, my heart going like this. And uh, there was a bar, so I sort of got a drink. And we all stood there. And then somebody came up and said, would you like to dance? Yes. So I, so I danced and I danced all evening with different women, young, you know, 19, 20, 21. And I had a lovely evening. And one of them I thought was particularly nice. And I agreed to meet her again. And I met her again. She said that her job was driving a trolley on Paddington Station. I thought, I hope I do rather better than that, <laughs> meeting these people. Anyway. Because you painted this wonderful picture of, of uh, as, as, as gay clubs used to be, I'm not sure they, they are quite now, but, but being classless. So, they were. You know, there were, there were. There were grandees, there were probably oh, there were, there were dames. Exactly. And, and then there were, there were, there were women selling they themselves were, at night. Yeah. There were prostitutes. There was a whole range. The thing that united them was that they loved women. And it was, um, in a sense, it was a very respectable club. Um, there were no drugs or anything like that. You could have a drink and you danced. And it was one of the few places that I knew of, which was like a refuge. You could just be yourself and dance. And because if two girls danced, I'm talking about the 50s and 60s, two girls dancing together would still look a bit unusual. Mm. And... Um, so it was, uh, you, didn't, you didn't really mind who they were. There were some very aristocratic girls and, um, and as I say, some prostitutes. Mm. Um, but everybody aristocratic in their, but yes, in their way. And can I just say something about when I was assistant editor on this magazine called The Circle? Um, Which was the Odeon magazine. And the Odeon and Gaumont Cinemas. And it was, in those days, big, big stuff. And I went out to interview the manager, the only woman manager of a cinema, of one of our cinemas, out somewhere 
outside London. And as I looked and talked to her, I realised that she was queer. And uh, she had been an officer in the army. And so we had a, a cup of coffee at, uh, halfway through the morning. I met her staff, 12 usherettes, and they were all lined up in uniform and they had to show their hands to her, make sure they were clean and her nails were done. And, um, I mean, usherettes. And um, <laughs> I said to her, what's it like being gay in an area like this? And she went white. She said, for goodness sake, don't tell them at home. I've had office. They'll set me on the spot. I'm looking after 12 usherettes. And then they will sack me. No, of course I won't, but that was what it was like then. It wasn't like the boys, it wasn't against the law, but it, you would be ostracised for that. Mm. And, I mean, I can't believe it today when you have the head of the Tories in Scotland in a gay marriage. You have, I mean, it's changed so much that younger people here probably won't realise how difficult it was for us then. In the sense that you kept quiet about it. And I had really good friends that I went on holiday with who didn't know that I was gay at all. Well, you, you talk at, at the end of the, the book about being on holiday with... I'm just going to take, take the microphone and put it on the, the table, because not the oh. microphone, the pack, because I think that might... You think that's causing it? Might do, who knows? It seemed to work earlier on. So. Oh, is it mine? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put mine on the table too, and let's hope. <laughs> How's that? Seem to be crackle-free for a moment or two. It's all this, all this rain. Yet you, you talk at the end of the book about being on holiday uh, with three great friends. So you travel with endlessly: Mary Baker, uh, Heather Brigstock, and Catherine Whitehorn, the, the, the great writer. And you, you sort of accidentally come well, out. Yes, because you know the four of us used to go on holiday to Spain for a long weekend, and it was wonderful. We didn't stop talking the whole weekend. Heather Brigstock was the high mistress of St Paul's Girls' School, and. Um, uh, Mary Baker was Kenneth Baker's wife and uh, had been a, a teacher. And, I mean, we just chatted all the time over some wine. And it was really lovely. Um, so uh, one evening we were there and we were chatting, going on and on and on. And somehow, I don't know how it was, but something came up. And I thought, well, I just have to say it. So I said, and of course, you know, I mean, they were sophisticated women. I thought that they would know. <laughs> I mean, you know, surely they would have thought... She never talks about a boyfriend. Uh, she's not married. Um, but, and so I said, oh, by the way, you, I said, you obviously know. I mean, if I'd got a gun out and shot it, <laughs> they, would, they were amazed, absolutely amazed. So I thought, oh, goodness me. Anyway, Mary's reaction was, I'll never share a room with you again. <laughs> <laughs> but she was thinking of her husband and publicity in case there was ever anything like that. And she was always very careful with, with publicity. And so she was serious. I mean, that wasn't... She was serious. Yeah. But that was because if anything came, became public about yeah. me, then it might affect her. It might affect Kenneth. Yeah. He was a senior um, Tory uh, politician and she didn't want any, any publicity. Um, Heather, I think it was... Just said, no, um, no, it's Catherine who said, I thought I knew you. And, <laughs> and Heather said, my daughter is, going, is, I think, going through a gay patch. <laughs> a gay phase, that's the thing, isn't it? Just a phase. Just a phase. 
So it was, it was very interesting, their reaction to this. <laughs> yeah, but you stayed friends. Oh, totally, yeah. totally. There's no, nothing changed in our friendship. Yeah. But you, you write about the idea of coming out at the age of... I, I think I you know. were then in your late 80s when this happened. And, oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the book really is when I came out because a lot of people didn't know until they read my book, yeah. and including my family. And um, that's really the risk you take when you write. I tried to write as honestly as I could. Uh, actually, really, I wrote it about uh, life in the civil service and things like that. I wanted people to know exactly what it was like doing the job. And that was what I was wanting to, to say. But um, as, as well, um, it was, um, I'm afraid, because I could hardly do that without saying that I was gay, which meant that I came out at the age of 90. <laughs> and my, my joke was, if I don't like it, I'm going back in again. <laughs> well, I love that double, coming out in the gateways club age 22 and then coming out again at 90. <laughs> Yes, I'm not sure the door was ever shut firm in, no. in, in between. Um, it's really interesting that you were there on holiday with one of your best friends, Mary Baker, the wife of a, of a conservative uh, 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 minister, a conservative politician. You, you describe yourself as starting out as a Cornish liberal. You then had a period working at Labour HQ and, and working very closely with, with great women in the party like Betty Boothroyd and Gwyneth Dunwoody and, and Shirley Williams. You got very close to being a, 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 at least selected in a, a swing seat as a, as a Labour candidate. But then later you worked and developed a very close relationship with Ted Heath, a Tory Prime Minister. You, you talk in the book about frustration now at the, the way you can only, you can only support one, one cause. You know, people vilifying Mrs Thatcher and saying what a terrible person she was and not being prepared to accept that there can be, can have been anything good. Yeah. Uh, uh, Brexit is another obvious example of that and we probably don't want to talk about that now but I, I think that kind of, that frustrates you, doesn't it? That people dig themselves into these silos. Well, you know, what I don't, really don't understand and it could be my age is this tribalism today. Um, the hatred some people had for Margaret Thatcher, I mean, really visceral hatred, and similarly for Harold Wilson, that they hated him. Well, Margaret Thatcher actually did several very good things as Prime Minister. So did Harold Wilson. Ended the death penalty, started the Open um, University. Um, you know, they both did good things according to their lights. And I look back on a time, even going back to people like Jenny Lee and Barbara Castle, people who you knew where you were with them, you knew what they stood for, and you could respect them for that. Whereas today, I don't really know what they stand for, and I really deplore this tribalism. Um, I can understand why the Cornish voted leave, because they had a, a rightful argument about the fisheries and about farming. And I can understand that that weighed with them on their vote. Because otherwise, Cornwall has always been Cornish and liberal, I mean, in the past. But um, I think whatever you are, it should, you shouldn't feel it so deeply that you can't be friends with somebody anymore. I think that is shocking. Mm. 
Um, There's I... a terrible letter in the Observer today about a, 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 a child who just feels they can't look after their parents anymore because their parents voted voted leave. They're, they're really? very strong remain and, and literally splitting up a uh, splitting up a family. I, th I think, think it is really really deplorable because in in when I was young, you, know, you could have two or three siblings, and um, one could vote one way, one could vote another way, and one could be not interested in politics at all, but. It's become emotional, and uh, deeply emotional, and I just think it's terrible, really terrible. Um, let's hope we get over this stage, because I worry for young people. I, don't, I think they're going to go through a, a really unhappy patch. Do you wish, do you wish that you'd gone into Parliament? I mean, you, Stroud, I, I think would you've have, lost to that. You, you, yes. you were nearly selected as candidate, and, and you might have won. Well, my reason, for going, my reason for going to the Labour Party was that I went for a year to a school of adult education to make up for the fact of not having been to university. And I had a wonderful year studying the novel, Holier. It's a place called Hillcroft, still there, and they still take people, women of any age, and they can stay there for a year residentially. So just remember Hillcroft if you are feeling like you'd want to do that or you know somebody, Hillcroft College. Anyway, uh, the principal said to me, Barbara, um, you're interested in politics and we would love to get an MP, one of her students is an MP. Now the best way into the house is Labour, they have more women, more women MPs. So um, would you be prepared to go and work at Transport House? I said, well, why not? I mean. <laughs> quite interesting. Just a Labour HQ. So, um, yes, Labour HQ those days. So I went off and uh, joined the Labour Party. And uh, before long, and I met Betty Boothright, I met uh, Gwyneth Dunwoody and so on. And um, they were set on a political career. So I thought, well, why not me? So I, first of all, I became chairman of the staff. Um, you know, I'm quite good at politics, actually, and um, so I was chairman of the staff, I became a councillor in Islington, I jumped through all the right hoops, and I, in between, Gwyneth Dunwoody and I put on a show for our Christmas party. Gwyneth and I sang songs and did a little dance, and we were so good that we got another booking. <laughs> We were, we were asked to go to the Fabian Society's Christmas party too. Now, <coughs> um, so the great day came when I went down and was interviewed and <coughs> I was offered a marginal seat, Stroud. It was then just marginal. And I drove back to London thinking, I'm on my way. And the nearer I got to London, the more I realised that it would be hopeless for me because it would be hip hypocritical. I'm not truly Labour never was, and it would be living a lie. So, I mean, I can do cliches very quickly. And <coughs> so I got back and I thought, what am I going to do? I felt terrible. I thought I've wasted four or five years of my life. And um, I talked to one or two people there, Peter Shaw and um, George Cunningham, and they said, you haven't wasted your time. You've learned a lot. Uh, why don't you go into the civil service? So I said, OK. Which is what I did. And you so worked. Was, you worked. And I worked in, in my way up. Yeah, because I, I started again at the bottom. I mean, 
quite often I've started at the bottom and worked my way up. I've swum in and out of typing pools. And, um, and uh, so I was, um, I, I ended up at number 10 with Harold Wilson to start with. And something that could never happen now. You were, you were a political appointee. You, 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 you've been a civil servant, but then uh, 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 Joe Haynes, who was the um, yes. Harold Wilson's press chief, asked you to come in and work in the, the press office there. Yes. Uh, when Wilson went and Edward Heath arrived, yes. it would be inconceivable now that anyone appointed by one party would stay under a different... You know, that Dominic Cummings is going to work if Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister. <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to gonna happen, is it? But, no. but it, in those days... You know, you just formed a bond with, well, with Edward Heath and, and, and you carried on. Well, what was interesting was, because um, I stayed on in the job and I watched him come in and I thought, look at that grin, look at that hair, look at that. How awful, it was anathema to me. So, you know. um, and then he came and um, first thing that happened was as he got to the front door, some mad woman threw a tin of paint all over him. And I thought, how awful, how sad for him. This is the greatest moment in a politician's life. He is going in to number 10 as prime minister. And somebody ruins it. And I felt really sorry for him. Anyway, um, all was quiet for a day or two. And then the telegraph came out with a diary paragraph in Peterborough, the spy in the camp. And it was about me. Um, you know, that I'd worked at the Labour Party. Mind you, that was 10 years before, but still. Um, and that I shouldn't be there. And uh, then, very quickly, we had a terrible crisis because three planes were hijacked to the desert in the Middle East and um, by Palestinian... Uh, and um, first they took off Israeli citizens and had them under guard. Then they took off everybody with a Jewish surname. They were hooked off. And we worked night and day. As their, our intermediary was in Switzerland, um, Red Cross. And I, we slept in chairs over the whole weekend for three weeks. It was a very quick moving thing. At the end it was resolved and they were all freed. It took a great deep breath. Two things about that. One, I got a note from Ted Heath saying, I hear you worked really hard over this time. I would like you to stay if you would like to. Now that is unheard of. Harold Wilson, if he'd wanted a Tory to, to stay, his machine, the party machine, would not have let him. So the fact that Ted did that really made me feel I've misunderstood him. That really is something. And the second thing was that he had organised a party at Chequers to celebrate getting into number 10. And he had every leader in the arts in Europe there for his party. He knew them all. He was a bachelor. His love was the arts and music. He had Isaac Stern was there. And they were, they were all there, um, Osbert Lancaster. I mean, you looked everywhere you looked. And I thought no other prime minister could do that, could bring in a array of people like that in the arts 
because on the whole they're Philistines. I mean, and I really think that goes for most of our establishment nowadays, frankly. Um, so of course I would, I, I went uh, indirectly because of Ted Greenfield. He was music uh, critic of the Guardian, who was a friend of. Friend that's of right. He was a friend of Ted Heath, and I. He was also a friend of mine. I didn't know he knew Ted Heath, and he was invited. So he said, "Barbara, you can come as my guest." So I went to my boss. I went to Robert Armstrong, and I said, "I've been invited to this party. Um, do you think I can go? Because I'm on staff." And, you know, and um, he said, "I don't see why not." So I went. The person who was there was the Prime Minister because he had to stay back at number 10 while this crisis was going on. You know, it's a bit hard, you miss your own party. Mm. So I again thought, well, you know, he seems to have got a hard deal. So that's why I became, I learned to respect him totally as somebody who was what he was. And difficult, short-tempered, petulant, he was himself, and he was loyal, and you could trust his word. And he came to my 25th birthday party. 75th. Uh, sen sorry. My <laughs> <laughs> 75th. And um, he made a speech. And you can imagine, most of my friends here were not Tory. And he made a speech, and he said, all my life I did what Barbara told me ever since I knew her, look where it got me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were, my friends were saying, you know, we've no idea he could be like this. But that's what he was like. He went, I went with him to a party of the Society of uh, Organists, and it was just me and his detective were there. And he was laughing and talking and joking, made a speech, and his detective said to me, I wish Barbara you could do that for him when he's out or on a platform. Of course, he clammed up. He was never like that when he was on a speech. You know. It's a very interesting, that part of the book is a very interesting portrait of a man who is, was very complicated and still, you know, uh, almost indecipherable, I think, to, to many people who, who remember him as prime minister and people with interest in politics looking <laughs> back. You know, it was a sort of closed book. I mean, the, that petulant word is used is used often. Y you sort of became his walker almost, didn't you? I mean, you go to the I opera did. together when, when he was <laughs> off negotiating um, uh, the Treaty of Rome, leading us into, into, the, into the EC. In those days, a lot of the programme included, oh, you're going to see the opera in Berlin yes. or in Italy or yes. whatever. And, and you, you, would, you would go with him because you were I both there on in, your own. I sat in the, the royal box with him, just the two of us. And you see, what, what jewellery do you wear that sort of occasion? I wore none. Because all around me were diamonds flashing, probably blinding. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, what, what I used to say that half the audience were the wives of Greek yacht owners. You know? um, and it was impossible. And that's when I think the first time when I went and I had to wear some, you know, evening dress. And um, so I, I found out that the chaps got an award, you know, an allowance. I said, can I have an allowance? Certainly not. Why not? Well, we've not ever done that. <laughs> and you see, this happened so often. I went, well, no, I'm jumping ahead. And I went, when I, later on, I became private secretary to um, a minister, and we went to Brussels. And uh, there was a dinner, 
and it was really so that they could talk to the journalists about some subject. And I had to stay with my minister. I'd written down the things for him. But at the end of dinner, our hostess got the eyes of the ladies and you felt yourself standing up. Because she, did, she went like that and you found yourself standing up. So we started going out. And I said, I can't go out. I'm, I'm with my minister. She said, but the ladies retire. I said, I can't retire. <laughs> <laughs> he won't get on without me. She said, it would be the talk of the ladies tomorrow. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I went round and came in through the kitchen. And uh, the butler said, uh, Madame Fouffrenet du Café. I said, bien sûr, aussi en cognac. <laughs> and uh, and um, Geoffrey said to her, Barbara, thank God, just come and sit here. And, uh, because, you know, we'd worked together on, on what he was going to say. But that, the position of women, because I was one of the first to be um, a private secretary to a minister. They were all men. And you, you, uh, they weren't used to it. So that when I got back, uh, Geoffrey wrote to the head of the Foreign Office and said, you know, you've got to change your ways. And they did. The, the, the detail in this book is so glorious because another little sideline about that story of that dinner, uh, uh, the, the British Embassy in Brussels had, had uh, two butlers who yes. were a, a middle-aged gay couple yes. um, running, running the domain with great, great care and enthusiasm. Yes. Uh, and, and the British ambassador's wife, I think, thought she was being very progressive in this, uh, in this employment. Oh, she loved them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I've tried to be as honest as possible in describing just what it was like. So suppose you were doing the job, you know, it was like that. And, um, that, that line, I can't retire, could have been another title for this book, <laughs> I think, because you almost retire and then you end up working for, for Yorkshire Television. Uh, yes. Then you, you become deputy chairman of West Country Television, who, who took over from, uh, from TSW as the, the ITV company. And, and your, your, your interests, although you're not working in a staff job anymore, your, your political interests, your campaigning interests continue. Uh, we didn't even talk about uh, your time in Tanganyika. Uh, we may get there, but I think at this point we should open up the floor to questions because I think there are uh, probably going to be uh, going to be quite a few. So who would like to uh, who would like to start off with a with a question for Barbara Hosking? Yes, here, here at the front. Sorry. Hang on, we need a <laughs> we need a microphone. Well, 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 that's it. Okay, tell us about your time in Tanganyika. Thank you. Well, that was uh, that was a, sort of a, a one-off extraordinary thing because um, although the Cornish are miners and do. <laughs> You find a Cornishman at the bottom of every hard rock mine. Uh, and the, man, the manager of this mine was a Cornishman. And I got a letter, out of, a phone call out of the blue from my school friend Mary, saying, Barbara, we've, I've been asked whether I'd go to this mine and spend there three years on a contract in the office, and I need somebody else to go with me. The two of us, we will together do all the office work on the mine. It's very remote, and uh, you'll be sort of out of touch from everybody. And I thought maybe you'd like to come with me. So I said yes. And sort of within a month, we'd gone. Where I had all my jabs and things like that. All the big luggage went by sea. So we turned up with very few clothes. Um, my mouth organ went by sea. And of course, what I didn't know was that they read the manifest in the office. <laughs> what sort of woman is this? She's got a mouth organ. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just rather thought that at night, 
we would be somewhere sort of out in a clearing and I could play Claire de Lune. You know? <laughs> it, it didn't turn out like that, but for three years it was an extraordinary life because um, I seized the opportunity. I could drive just, but um, I suddenly found that quite often there things turned up. And um, this, this fan turned up. It was an ex-field ambulance with wheels like this, but I got it for 30 quid. And so it gave Mary and me the freedom to drive around and go around to things. Um, and uh, then somebody else turned up with a rifle. Well, yes, I learned to shoot. Um, you know, whatever was going, I did it. Mary was not so keen on that, but she was marvellous at organising the parties because part of our job was to help to... Keep, because there were only altogether five women on the mine. The manager's wife, deputy manager's wife, Italian, the, um, Mary and me, and the nurse. And we, and we were surrounded by all these men. And of course, when we had a party, we had to dance with everybody we could. So, so we had quite a long evening. And of course, all the social life was on the club. But if, if, when we could, we organized sports. And Barry was furious with me because I wrote home to the Cornishman that Mary came second in the egg and spoon race. <laughs> She was furious. <laughs> it's a lovely concept that for a while the Cornishman had an East Africa correspondent. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's, that's, that's terrific. Any, any, uh, any other questions uh, from the floor? No. Oh. Well, I'll carry on asking them then. Um, <laughs> there's one at the back. Oh, there is, excellent. Right. While we get there, let me just ask you this. Yes. You mentioned Africa. I mean, in the first five pages of the book, you talk about uh, uh, Alaska, um, South Africa, India, all people from Penzance who had connections or were there. I mean, it makes the point about how international Cornwall has, has, always, has always been, which I think people sometimes, sometimes forget. I mean, the, 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 the Cornishman at the bottom of every, of every mine is a not only that, of that. Not only that, did you know that... Um, in the Wild West, the cowboys were often Cornishmen because when the mines went up and they couldn't get the job anymore, they knew about farming. They went off to round up the cows, <laughs> they thought. Mm. So that's why they love the Cornish songs and cowboy songs mm. here. They love to sing them mm. because uh, they had that link. I think one or two of the famous cowboys were Cornish. Were Cornish yeah. but, um, Certainly the diaspora, and um, if I hope you all know the web for the um, for Cornwall and the old Cornwall societies, you yeah, have a look. I mean, just look on the web, and uh, can get Cornwall because there are links with South Africa, and particularly with Australia, where they are very keen still yeah. on uh, on their links with here, and also in California, the Blue Blue Valley. Mm. And a lot, uh, of, a lot of new links, I think, with, with Mexico and well, old right. links that are now being with Mexico, with Cuba. A yes. lot of Cuban Cornish who have, you know, Cornish surnames but are called, you know, Pablo or Jose or whatever is their first name. And then right. lots, of, lots, of, lots in Argentina as well. And, and, and the new um, archive centre in Red Ruth, which yes. is, I'm sure many people will have been to, but is an extraordinary thing, has, has lots of very useful material. It's on, partly because they went out to build the railways. Yeah. And so then a lot of them stayed. Yeah. A question at the back, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I'm so enjoying being in your company this morning and hearing about this wonderful life you've led. I'd be interested to know, are you still, are you living in London now and, and what do you do for fun and interest in, well, in current times? It's the A-Wave Club. <laughs> no. <laughs> <coughs> My dancing days are over. Um, what, what I do, I live actually in Westminster. It's lovely. I'm just, if the wind's in the right direction, I could have heard Big Ben. I can't hear it now because it's all closed up. Um, but I thought I'd end my days right in the middle so that um, I can hop onto a bus or get, get theatre and opera. I love the voice. My mother had a, a really good voice and she got her LRAM for voice, but she only used it with the Penzance uh, Ladies um, uh, Choir and the um, Penzance Operatic Society. It's the only singing she did. but um, So that's uh, what I do now, is I go to hear the voice as often as I can. And of course, in the last two years, what has been fantastic, my new life, is being interviewed on radio and television. <laughs> <laughs> and also, and you see, <coughs> when you write a book, you have no idea. It's sort of like putting a stone in the water. The ripples come out. You don't know where they're going to end. And in my case, of course, what I had not really understood was that uh, gay people wanted me. And you see, I mean, I wasn't really sort of used to this. And I was asked to go and speak at an international conference run by Stonewall. And Stonewall is a big organization. And um, uh, 800 of them. And so they wanted me to I, I talked for an hour. And they, they gave me a standing ovation. Now, how about that when you're 71? <laughs> I mean, it was extraordinary. And so I have to say I've been blessed. I've had a very full life. I've had a very rich life. And um, to have to end it like this has been really extraordinary, really. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I think that's probably, probably the note to end on. Uh, um, uh, this book is really, is really essential reading because, it, well, it's, we've touched on, on 5 or 10% of it, but as you say, it's a history of, of, of working in politics at such interesting times, of living the life you've lived, of, of being a gay woman is, is, is gripping stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, we are going to let Barbara make her way to the, to the throne uh, where... Yeah. Authors sit to sign books. <laughs> can, and can I just say yes. that why it's disobedient was a civil servant said to me, Barbara, when are you ever going to learn that rules are to be obeyed? <laughs> so I sort of thought about this and I thought, well, in my book, rules are to be interpreted. <laughs> and I think that's why I've got the word disobedient there. But... Uh, if any of you have got children who want to go into the civil service, you can understand what it's like and what it's really like. And it's fascinating. Encourage them. They have a marvellous life, really. Please keep interpreting the rules. <laughs> Barbara Hosking, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you.